This is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. This is Father Patrick Prisco. And this is Father Gregory Pine. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, happy Easter. Here we are. We have survived all things. You've done so well. It's great. I was trying to think of something because we had this theme going for a little while on our, our Lenten Lexios of like, tell us about your worst Lenten experience or best Lenten penance. And I was thinking, well, what could we talk about for Easter? Um, so we're going to talk about what is like your favorite Easter memory. And mm. I'm going to start. Uh, we on Easter Sunday, we would always have Easter like brunch at my aunt's house. Uh, so the whole family would gather there and there would always be an Easter egg hunt. And as we got older, the Easter egg hunts got more, um, more like, uh, high stakes. So instead of we transitioned from like candy to some eggs having like change in them. And then as we got older, we're like, mm -mm, no, we need, we need like bills. So then some eggs had like bills in them of money. And then there was a golden egg introduced that had like, I don't know, it was probably like 20 bucks in it, but it was always hidden in like the worst spots and took like all afternoon to find. But you would like, when people were looking for the golden egg, you would go to their basket to steal their other eggs. So like you might get more money. You know, it's great. There's a whole like, it, it was like a whole black market of like Jancic egg hunting and swapping and those sort of things. So, and then sometimes people got tired of us looking for the egg. So you could like pay off an adult to give you a hint, you know, it was great. So. That's my, it has nothing to do with Jesus, but that's an Easter memory. So there you have it. We also did Easter egg hunts because of America um, and it's considerable force. And there's one Easter. So we did a blend of plastic eggs, a blend. It sounds like a sweet <laughs> melange, a blend. Uh, we did a combination of plastic eggs and then hard boiled eggs because, you know, you got to keep traditions alive and. What says Easter tradition, like randomly dying hard-boiled eggs and a kind of terrible polychromatic nonsense figure. Um, but uh, there's, yeah, there's one year that the hard-boiled eggs were parboiled, actually softy, <laughs> soft, soft-boiled. And the thing is, when you're, when you're egg hunting, right, you're just piling egg upon egg in pocket or, you know, in the outstretched shirt until such time as they accumulate and then they grow heavy and then they start cracking. And then there's just egg yolk <laughs> all over you and your brothers and sisters. <laughs> so it led to sweet, like some sweet photo ops and, and general destruction. But we weren't as worried about not finding the hard-boiled eggs, which were stout, still out there in the wild. Because, well, we knew that, yeah, they, they weren't eatable slash usable slash we didn't care. <laughs> my, my, my favorite Easter memory is that uh, my sister had taken a hard-boiled Easter egg, which had been decorated, and put it inside a plastic Easter egg. <laughs> and hid it in, like, her, in her cubby. We used to have these little bins in our kitchen, right? A lot of families have them where kids put their school stuff or whatever else. And put it in the back of this cubby and forgot about it. Oh, oh my gosh. And the egg started to rot. <laughs> it destroyed our kitchen for days. My mother looked through everything. She was convinced that like a raccoon had crawled inside the house and died somewhere because it smelled so foul. Yeah. But she couldn't figure out what it was until eventually she realized that my sister had hidden this hard-boiled egg, which was rotting inside a plastic Easter egg. 
Mm. Yummy. Well, happiest of Easter's to everybody. This is, <laughs> this is really, really lovely. Um, so we, we're here not just to talk about eggs, but to talk about the readings for Easter Sunday Mass. So before we do that, uh, we'll start with the collect for uh, Easter Sunday. Let us pray. O God, who on this day, through your only begotten Son, have conquered death and unlocked for us the path to eternity. Grant, we pray, that we who keep the solemnity of the Lord's resurrection may, through the renewal brought by your Spirit, rise up in the life in the light of life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Father Patrick, take us to the first reading, if you would. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Peter proceeded to speak and said, You know what has happened all over Judea? beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This man God raised on the third day and granted that he be visible not to all the people, but to us, the witnesses chosen by God in advance who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commissioned us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's interesting to have this reading on Easter Sunday, I think, because it comes from the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and in St. Peter's recounting of the of the passion and resurrection of our Lord, he also includes um, in that recounting the, the appearances that our Lord made to the apostles. So it kind of, you know, we jump a little bit ahead, which we'll get in the readings through, through Holy Week and through Easter, but we kind of get a synopsis, you can think of like, a few months later after the resurrection. I mean, whatever the time frame is, but it's not, Peter's not simply recounting the resurrection. He's recounting things that have happened that have led the, the apostles to um, believe in the resurrection. And I think it's important for us to, um, to see it in, in those terms that it, the resurrection isn't a sort of one-time historical thing that just happened and doesn't, um, it doesn't, you know, kind of the effects don't continue, but just the opposite, that the that the resurrection is, in a way, we could say, a timeless reality. Of course, there's the historical crucifixion and resurrection, but the way by which God communicates himself and the effects of the resurrection has a timeless um, reality to it. Those, the the graces, the the gifts of, of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection are still communicated to us, most especially, as St. Paul says, um, through the forgiveness of sins. Um, this is how the Christian life begins in the forgiveness of sins through baptism. This is how the Christian life endures um, through the sacraments, uh, most especially the sacrament of penance, the forgiveness of sins, God's mercy. Um, as I'm sure we've talked about on other episodes, um, we the Christian life is not about simply not sinning, um, and neither is St. St. Peter saying that simply the end of the Christian life, the end of the resurrection is forgiveness, but ultimately it's to, to be in union, to, to, to be in union with the resurrected Lord. Um, 
but this is something that is on offer, not just 2000 whatever years ago, but on offer today and this great feast of the resurrection. I'm struck by this description of the resurrection as visible, but kind of selectively visible. Uh, you could say that one of the aims of the incarnation and of the mysteries that our Lord lived in his sacred humanity is that they make God manifest and making him manifest, they communicate God to us who are saved by contact with that divine life. But it's a kind of contact which requires of us faith. So St. Thomas will say that this reality is applied to us spiritually by faith and corporeally by sacraments, which is to say there's a kind of ongoing dispensation whereby we are saved. And it seems that part and parcel of that dispensation is that we not see even things that are visible. So when St. Peter describes it, he says, the man, this man God raised on the third day and granted that he be visible, not to all people, but to us, the witnesses chosen by God in advance. So God foreordains, God predestines that certain witnesses to the resurrection would be the ones to announce that resurrection to their contemporaries and then to subsequent generations. So it's not as if, oh, man, we were like born in the wrong century. Would that we could have lived in first century Palestine or whatever it was called at that juncture. Uh, so we could have seen the resurrection and maybe our faith would be on better footing. It's like, no, the Lord has foreseen and the Lord has foreordained that you receive this gift by means of the preaching of others so that you might be incorporated into the ecclesial body in faith and sacrament. And so incorporated into his body, right, which is the sacred humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately conducted into the life of heaven. So our Lord is deliberate in both revealing and in concealing in both making manifest and in making veiled. And all of it conduces to our growth in faith and sacrament, ultimately to our reception of the divine life. While scrolling Twitter the other day, I saw some <laughs> modern genius commentator um, who said something to the effect of, uh, you don't need God anymore, just go to therapy. And, you know, this view is very prominent uh, in our age, um, which has been, I think, rightly dubbed the therapeutic age. But the point that the guy was making in his tweet was he said um, that, that too much too much religion doesn't actually help people to grapple with the reality of their existence or the deepest questions. And insofar as I think that's true, I'm fine with that, that, that people have shallow experiences of religion and they don't really face the ultimate questions. And um, in that in that sense, I suppose I agree with this tweet. Here we have an invitation on Easter Sunday to face the reality of our religion, to face the ultimate questions. Peter doesn't hide anything in his proclamation of what happened to Jesus. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, he says. Lest we think that the Easter story is like the Christmas story, that it's the kind of fable or comfortable tale we tell to children, we should have pause and consider what the words really mean, that in the resurrection, Jesus gives us the grace, the ability, a means, more powerful even than therapy, to face ultimate questions, um, to face the deepest questions about our meaning, and gives us resounding and extraordinary answers. With that, we'll look at our second reading, uh, the second of the two options for Easter Sunday, a reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens all the dough? Clear out the old yeast, so that you may become a fresh batch of dough, inasmuch as you are unleavened. For our paschal lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we have an example of a letter from St. Paul, which is typically dated to the 40s or 50s. Uh, and it directs our attention to a parable that's used in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13, which many date to the 80s or 90s. So it's because of the way that we read the sacred scriptures, we think of everything in light of the gospel, but sometimes we're actually reading texts which come before the gospel, and so we read the gospels in light of them. But the parable with which we're more familiar, you know, the idea that the kingdom of heaven is like a little yeast, a little yeast which is hidden in dough and makes the whole thing to rise, it gives us a positive impression of that relationship between the kingdom of heaven, who is identified in the gospel of Matthew as our Lord Jesus Christ, and we who are that dough, which is leavened by his leavening influence. Here, though, the image is somewhat complicated. I mean, it's related. It's not of a piece, but it has something to say intertextually with what we have from the Gospel of Matthew. So in this case, we're told to clear out the old yeast, as if to say that there is another who reigns in our members, right? So it might be the law of sin and death, to which St. Paul refers in another place, or it might be a kind of end who is not our Lord Jesus Christ himself, whether that be wealth or fame or honor or glory or power or sensible pleasure or whatever it is that falls short of God. We're being told to kind of scrape that out and then to subject ourselves organically to a relationship from which we hope to grow, from which we hope to heal, from which we hope to have our horizons expanded. And truth be told, a lot of what is being demanded of us is a kind of removing of obstacles, is a kind of consenting to and cooperating with something that, that goes before us, something that kind of takes us in charge and then conducts us along the way. So when we think about this then in terms of the resurrection, the resurrection itself is a principle of our spiritual growth. It's not an event that we look back on and in meditating upon, we kind of gin up the courage to be better and then to set our eyes on things above which is what the other option for the second reading testifies to in a kind of different sense. But it's for us then to receive the revelation of the resurrection as a grace, as an event, as a kind of encounter, which happens upon us and radically reorients our interior life and then breaks forth in a transfigured and transformed exterior life. Why? Well, because our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. And so we celebrate on account of the fact that something has happened, something has changed, and as a result of which, we will never be the same, right? We can't go back to former ages, right? We've been ruined for life as a result of this encounter. Mind you, it's a blessed ruination for we cannot go back to those old flesh pots for we have tasted of the fruit of freedom, right? We've come into the promised land and now it's for us to live and to abide therein. When we were novices, one of the priests in our community was very excited to have butter pallets that were shaped as the paschal lambs do you remember this <laughs> mm -hmm. it was it was extraordinary he talked about these for weeks this this priest that we were going to have these for the easter dinner and um i i know that in, in some places there are traditions of making lamb shaped cakes right this is a polish thing um both the butter and the cake point to the deepest mystery of Easter, which is that Christ is the lamb that was sacrificed for our sins. We use this word Paschal because uh, it comes from the word for the Passover sacrifice, that Christ was the Pasch. He's the lamb offered for our salvation. So if you are one of those families that has a lamb-shaped cake, or if you're one of those families that gets, as one priest uh, did when we were novices, very excited about 
lamb-shaped butters on the Easter dinner table. There is good reason, because this symbol is such a strong and important symbol for us, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. He is the lamb uh, slain. John the Baptist first points to him uh, at the beginning of the gospel. He describes Christ as the Lamb of God, encouraging us to behold the Lamb of God, to look and see this is the Lamb of God, the Paschal Lamb. And these are the words which resound at every Mass when the bread, um, which has become the body of Christ, is raised, when when the Holy Eucharist is put before our eyes. We identify it. The priest tells us who this is before us, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Let us pray then that this Easter, we might embrace again Christ, our Paschal Lamb, who has been sacrificed for us. The image of of yeast always, I think, just because of what it does, it's not a ter- terribly complicated or nuanced sort of imagery, but always conjures up like images of, of growth of, I mean, if I don't know if I was thinking, have I ever made bread from scratch with like proving, proving, proofing the yeast? Um, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm sure I did, but I can't remember. Obviously, I'm not a big bread maker, else I would know. But there, there's this easy image of of like the dough rising as it sits. And in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, it's also clear that he's there, there's, there are different types of yeast. There's the good yeast and the bad yeast, right? And um, they, but they both are uh, conducive to growth. They both grow things. So the bad yeast grows bad things and the good yeast grows good things. So if we think of the of that in 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 the terms of in terms of spiritual life and our relationship with Christ, um St. Paul is is warning of uh, of this growth in uh, of being cautious of this growth in sin and vice um that that can creep into our lives. The, the old yeast that is um, that is of malice and wickedness to to rid ourselves of that. And as Father Gregory was describing, to um, to do those sort of preparatory things so as to receive the grace that is the leaven of the goodies that moves us to growth and, and virtue and goodness. And if we think of this letter of St. Paul in coming after, at least in this Mass from St. Peter's uh, proclamation of the gospel or of the resurrection, we can understand then that it is in light of the resurrection in light of Christ's rising from the dead and his dispensing of grace, that we are able to grow in goodness and in virtue, that we are able to avail ourselves of that gift to rid ourselves of, of temptation, of near occasions of sin, so as to um, be formed and conformed to Christ. Okay, Father Gregory, would you read for us the gospel for this Easter Sunday? A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
for Dominicans, uh, this gospel has a special significance because Mary Magdalene is one of our preachers. I actually met a woman uh, recently in Poland who introduced herself to me. Her name is Magda Eve. And she said with a smile and a great joy, she said, I'm named after the two great sinners. <laughs> and that, well, that was a heck of a way to introduce yourself. Anyway, Dominicans love Mary Magdalene. We love this great saint because uh, she was the first to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. She was the one who, she is the one who says uh, that, that the, that the Lord is, that the Lord, is, uh, that something has happened. She draws the disciples' attention to the fact that, uh, that the Lord is not in the tomb, that he is no longer there, that uh, some great working of grace is still afoot. And her, part of the reason why Mary Magdalene, I think, was the one able um, in God's providence to make this uh, to make this announcement was because of her friendship with Christ. For it's not, uh, the, the message of Christ being risen is not an impartial thing. It's not a dispassionate thing. It's not a... Uh, it's not um, some piece of news she's conveying. It's information about her most intimate, her closest friend, the one who changed the horizon of her life. Um, and to be able to share that news brings such an abundant joy. So for us, we can be tempted to believe that Mary Magdalene's proclamation, the announcement of Jesus risen from the dead is um, just kind of fact bearing. And I think that would be a mistake. Because the good news of Christ risen for the dead is the story of the workings of grace about one of Mary Magdalene's, uh, but more importantly, one of our closest and dearest friends. There's a sense of urgency in the gospel, in in um, John's recounting of of Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter um, arriving at the tomb. Of course, it just says that Mary uh, initially came to the tomb early in the morning, but even that time of day conveys a sense of urgency, you know, before, while it was still dark, she was at the tomb, didn't, couldn't even wait for the, for the sun to rise, um, to, to get to the tomb. Um, and then when she discovered the empty tomb, she ran and then Peter and the other disciple ran. And there, there's this sort of urgency there. John tells us who was there first, who ran more quickly to the tomb. And I don't, I think in, in one way we could see, there being a, an urgency because of the strange circumstances, right? That Jesus was killed and Mary came to the tomb. Um, and as Father Patrick was describing, um, he's gone and she obviously loved him. They were, um, it's, it's her Lord. So when he's not there, there's sort of a panic, a desperation. And then if when the disciples hear this, hear this too, there's a sort of panic, a desperation and urgency to figure out what's going on. But I think there's another reason for uh, for this urgency and this movement that we get in the gospel today that we that we see in in his disciples, and that's because uh, the risen Lord um, calls us to to move, to follow, to be with to be with God um, in the same way or in a similar way of Christ's call to his disciples during his earthly ministry, that when Christ calls his disciples left everything to follow him. So too in uh, on this Easter morning, when, when Christ rises from the dead, there's an urgency to, to one in this case, to find out what is going on, but also still to find our Lord, to be with our Lord, um, to, to sort of bask, we could say in in the glory of the resurrection, perhaps the disciples, the apostles weren't aware of what had happened, but there's a desire still to be with Christ, to be find where he is, to pursue him and to be with him. So too in the Christian life, 
um, the glory of the resurrection calls us in and we should move to be called in into that life and share in that life with Christ. In the midst of what is a very dramatic encounter, I think there's a kind of undramatic point to be made about our own Christian conversion. And I want to turn to the second to last verse, and it says, Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. I guess I'm puzzled by the fact that what he believed isn't specified, because to this point in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, the only formal proclamation of the resurrection has been, they have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Uh, which, you know, isn't the fullest proclamation of the resurrection that we've heard so far in today's liturgy. And then it's explicitly stated in the following verse, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. So they don't understand the resurrection. That much is plain. And yet the other disciple goes in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. And I think that in, in the story of our own Christian conversion, there are many moments that are just like this. There are many moments where we don't exactly know what's happening, but we know that it's high time to fill in the blank, right? I haven't been making good use of the sacrament of confession, so I think I'm going to buckle down and go every month. Or I've been invited to go to daily mass with whatever friend before school starts, and I think I'll probably just do it this year because why not? Or whatever it is in your particular circumstance, it's kind of like it's not so much a dramatic event as it is a kind of capitulation or concession or a kind of tending to a thing that you may have been holding off at arm's length until that point in your life. And it's like, well, I guess this is happening now, so it may as well. And that, that little consent, that little cooperation is all that the need, excuse me, all that the Lord needs in, in order to draw you further up and further into his life. And I've gotten this impression, talking especially with women who are called to religious life, it's like they start small and then all of a sudden the Lord just starts branching out and they formerly enjoyed watching whatever television shows. And now they can't bear to watch Netflix because they just keep thinking about the Jesus, the fact that Jesus is in the chapel and they should just kind of you know, see what he's up to down there. It's like, who are you? And how is this change afoot? Uh, but I think that those simple words, and he saw and believed, is a testament to the fact that the grace of God, which is at work in our lives, you know, provided that we seek the means whereby to consent to and cooperate with it, can have a profound effect. It won't always look wild and wonderful, uh, which is the um, motto of the state of West Virginia. Uh, it won't always look wild and wonderful, but we, it will prove itself powerful in time because our Lord has a plan for our lives and he's seeing to it that that plan is carried out. With that, we will pray the prayer over uh, prayer after communion on this Easter Sunday. We've um, to, to wrap up our Lexio for this Lenten season. In pa I guess I was going to say in past years, um, we've done a Lexio uh, series for the Easter season. Um, but this year, stay tuned for uh, sort of bonus Sunday or weekend episodes on the Eucharist um, rather than on the Sunday readings um, in conjunction with the USCCB's um, Eucharistic Congress, which is coming up in a couple of years. And they're preaching um, on the Eucharist that will be happening over these coming years in preparation for that. So uh, with that, let us turn to the prayer after communion. Look upon your church, O God, with unfailing love and favor so that renewed by the Paschal Mysteries, she may come to the glory of the resurrection through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of God's Planning, and thanks to all of our supporters. If you'd like to help out with our work, 
uh, check us out at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like, subscribe, leave a review. All of those things are super helpful for us. Visit godsplaining.org to shop our merchandise to get dates and information for upcoming godsplaining events. We have three retreats coming up in July and August and spots are starting to fill up. So if you're if you'd like to come out for one of those, please check that out sooner than later. Um, and as always, know of our prayers for you. Pray for us. And until next time, God bless.